When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on SBI Audio. This season is made possible through the generous support of Patreon subscribers. To become a patron, visit Drifter Sympathy on Facebook and hear more music at holysons.bandcamp.com. You know, I never really spent much time with my dad over the course of my life. Like, if I do a podcast on him, I will probably be able to recall everything I know about my father in, like, one or two episodes, you know? We only have a collection of a few memories, and as time goes by, the way the memory works, you're going to start to forget them. But I remember going to see Lord of the Rings when it came out. I'm sure it was like we were meeting up with my dad. I'm guessing he must have just gotten cancer because that's the only time I would have seen him. I didn't remember it being that heavy of a situation. Um, but we sat down in the theater. The movie hadn't started. And, you know, my dad is... You wouldn't think of him as like a crier. It wasn't cold. Lord of the Rings hadn't even started. And, he, and I remember he turned to me and it was like really uncharacteristic. He was like, this book meant a lot to a ton of my friends and they're all dead. You have to remember at the time that was like a cult movement. You know, it's ironic because Tolkien didn't like the hippies and didn't want them to read it. But like... The hippies made it into a mythological, like a mini-religion, their own myth. And so the memory was interwoven with all those people's lives. And in that moment, my dad was like, I think it probably hit him that he is the keeper of those memories and that nobody else has those records of those people's existence. He's not crying because the movie is moving or anything. He's crying because mortality hits you in the face in those moments it makes perfect sense to me that you want to talk about someone or say their name or tell strangers about them because you're kind of like trying to preserve this organism that sort of withheld or bottled consciousness as you know it 
Artfully, I somehow told Ron's story and inadvertently protected him in the sense that I made him out to be this little angel, right? That you could fall in love with. <laughs> you, specifically Jonah. I did, yeah, it yeah. worked. It's probably got to be theorized that, like, part of the draw of a guru is that you're in a vulnerable situation. You are looking for guidance. And if someone takes you under their wing, they could abuse their power. I wonder if there's a dark pull that's always there. It might not be that they have a dark side, but the vulnerability is somehow seducing. Things could go wrong, and you're this blank sheet of paper. So you want to experience things. You want to be inducted. And of course, you don't know what that means. To want experience is to want bad experiences, too. I mean, certainly Ron was gay, and certainly I was, like, 14, 15. So there was some tension there, I guess. I never really thought about it. But, I mean, from day one when he said, you don't understand, people are going to think our relationship is strange because I'm funny. From then on, you know, I guess maybe there was the sense that we were misfits. You know, we didn't fit in, and we had our own little world. And I needed him... I think you could probably say he needed me. I mean, we talked constantly, deeply, philosophically, constantly. Like, you know, I mean, he had way more experience, but our curiosity was sort of on the same level. And I'm sure he found it amusing and entertaining to watch me spit out, like, all my opinions on anything. But the first time I felt Ron kind of slip from his pedestal... A big music festival came to town. I think it was the Horde Tour. Do you remember that? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) I never, ever would have gone to the Horde Tour. But I had just started smoking pot, and someone gave me a free ticket, and they were like, we're all going, jump in the car. And even though everything about my aesthetic world was saying, don't go into this environment, (laughs) I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going. I want to get high, you know? So we drive out to this outdoor stadium in in Raleigh. For the first time in my life, I could acquire paraphernalia in this situation. I'd never been to a bong shop or anything, so I had no standards whatsoever. And I was very excited. I believe it was $10. I bought my first bong, and it was really, truly like the most pathetic, tiny little test tube-looking thing. I guess it was offensively stupid-looking, But I didn't care, you know? I was, like, sitting on the grass, smoking out of my new bong at a music festival. So in my mind, I was like, you know, it was some sort of arrival point. I get back to Ron's, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like, we could use my bong if you want. I got one. And, like, you should have seen his face when I I pulled it out. I don't even know if he took the time to laugh at me. He took it out of my hand. And he walked over the garbage can and he just threw it away. <laughs> and I think that was like one of the crucial points where I was like, Ron doesn't give a shit if he like cuts me. Yeah. The look in his eyes was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I don't give a fuck about what you think. And I was like, I think I said something like, Ron, that's like my property, man. 
Like, that seems cruel to do that to me. He just looked at me like, you're an idiot. This is what's best for you. I don't know if that was the definitive moment I realized this, but I was like, oh, trusting Ron is going to come along with some suffering. (laughs) You know, I don't know where that's going to lead because I put my faith in this person. So then two more things happen. He was always, like, hypnotizing everybody and, like, convincing them to do shit. And he was very gossipy. So you had to watch what you told him. But eventually, the major problem was that I had been having all these problems with my girlfriend. I wasn't supposed to go over to her house. I wasn't allowed to see her. We still loved each other. And we tried to pass these notes to each other to kind of tell each other, like, I still love you. Things might work out. Maybe not right now, but let's let shit cool off. And I gave this note to Ron to give to her, and I believe she gave him one. And I think it was months before I I found out that she never got it. It's sort of my whole world revolved around this situation. It was really serious. I mean, I'd had the cops coming after me, And all sorts of bad shit had happened. This was probably the one thing in my life that either I really cared about or who knows what was going to happen. You know, maybe I was going to burn the whole fucking thing down. But when I found out that Ron didn't give her the note, I was like, I think I was blown away with how evil he could be. The reason why I told the bong story, which is embarrassing, is this was the same thing. He was effectively just saying, I know what's good for you. And what you want is meaningless. Right. So fuck what you want. He told me that he talked to her and he made up like weird details about some of her opinions about me. I mean, like weird little minute details that would throw me off and make me feel bad about myself. Let's say he was right. Like, let's say we shouldn't have been together. It's still not really exactly for him to decide in that manipulative a way. And then the kid that fell out of the chair when I kind of kicked him over and ended up having some schizophrenic issues from the LSD we took, the one that whose mom called me on the answering machine. How could I forget the messages? So we were in jazz band together at the school, and we had a show coming up at the Arts Center, which was, you know, not a small deal. <laughs> My buddy, who was already acting pretty weird and you know he'd given ron the fucking rape pamphlets i don't know if you remember that detail but Uh, he he had shown up at the family restaurant and given ron these rape pamphlets and ron was innocent our falling out had to do with how him and his mom thought me and ron were part of like a homosexual secret society trying to take over and and seduce them and so i guess they'd already had a little bit of baggage but at this show We go in and play, and we're just playing like Chuck Mangione, Feel So Good. During the show, Ron thought it'd be funny if he snuck outside and slipped a note into my friend's car that would scare the shit out of him. 
this gives you a sense of like Ron is like much more playful and kind of funny than you would imagine. Like he, he's he's not afraid to fuck with people, right? And a few days before, you know how you can rig up a car's windshield wiping system to fire to the side? Yes. Okay, we had done that. We were driving down the street in his mom's old car. This thing was fucking spray-painted hyper neon green. It looked fucking insane. I mean, I didn't know he was crazy, you know? So his tastes were already running bizarre. Right. That's so funny. It was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen in my life. We had rigged up the window washing system to fire off to the side, and surprisingly, it would go like 50 feet. It was pretty high-powered. So we're just fucking around, crazy bored. Just, just spraying. Yeah, just, you know, people at the ATM window. <laughs> no big deal. At some point, I just, like, reach over, and I'm kind of the trigger man, right? <laughs> and I reach over and just, like, I barely graze this fucking jogger. He's got this really long mane of red hair, and he's really physically fit. I mean, I'm sure it grazed his torso, whatever. Right, right, right. It's fucking water. Maybe we put some Mountain Dew in there. We hit a fucking stoplight, and I look in the rearview mirror, and this dude is like fucking Terminator 2 style running at us. I mean, 90 fucking miles per hour. This guy is coming, and he looks more angry than like if someone had like killed your family. I mean, he's like, he's going to kill us. We hit the one guy with, like, the biggest rage issues. <laughs> right. He was probably looking for just an excuse. I don't know how you get that angry. I honestly don't. I've, I don't know if I've ever been that angry. I'm like, dude, we got a problem. Like, look in the mirror. Like, this is bad. I think I said, like, roll them up. You know, and everybody, everybody rolls up the windows. I'm just like, okay, stare forward. Just... Do not make eye contact with this guy. We're sitting at a red light. We're stuck in traffic. And the dude like comes up right next to me to my right in the, in the window. And no hesitation. He takes his entire forearm and just starts bashing the window. And it's bending in. I mean, he's about to break the window open and kill me. And I'm just looking for it. It's not my car, so I'm kind of probably snickering. <laughs> But, I mean, I look over and his sweat is pouring down the fucking window. And my buddy just loses it. He's terrified. He just pulls out head on into traffic. He's got a red light. And he just fucking runs it to get away, which was a really good decision, actually. The reason why it figures in is that Ron knew how much this had traumatized him. You know, I probably thought it was hilarious. I mean, I think afterwards, I'm sure we cracked up. When you're that age, too, like, just everything's kind of a joke. And an adult sort of, like, losing their cool like that. Yeah. In traffic. I mean, it was just so amazing. So Ron sneaks outside and puts this note in my buddy's car. The note says, I found you. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Jesus, man. And, I mean, dude, think about what the car looks like. Like, we were caught either way. Anyway, this guy was going to eventually find the car because it's neon green. This jogger, being a local small town jogger, is going to see the fucking car again. Sure. That's just going right, to happen. Right, right, right. Right? So Ron decides... Oh, Ron says, like, acting as if this is from the jogger. Exactly. 
I'm sure I was there when he read the note. I think the blood just like drained from his face and he, and he really thought he was going to die. <laughs> Unknowingly to us, this kid was also spiraling into like some serious mental illness. So what happened when your friend found the note? Did he flip out? I think he truly believed it until I, I'm assuming I would have told him Ron definitely did this. Who knows if I could have even convinced him at that point because he believes we're part of this conspiracy. What's in a rape pamphlet? (laughs) It was like, this is what rapists don't do it? You have a point. Where the fuck did he get the fucking pamphlets? I don't know. I would imagine it was was something like um, what to do when you've been sexually assaulted. I'm sure Ron just threw them in the garbage. It was probably something he got from, like, the student counselor at school. My overarching point is that this isn't going to be a clean process. With a guru, you're falling in love with someone, and everyone can't be all good all the time. Something's going to shake you this faith because this faith that you've put in the person to guide you is unrealistic at its core. The person wasn't born to be your leader, you know, and you weren't born not to grow past the point that they helped you with. Inevitably, you're going to grow. It's just a matter of time until you phase out of that umbrella of influence that they have over you. Obviously, I can tell hundreds of stories about my second guru that put him in a a pretty bad light, too. But that was part of the seduction of his reign over my life was that he was a dangerous character. So Ron offered the doorway into LSD experience, which is, you know, obviously, as we can see, dangerous for my friend. But with the second guru, it's like danger was all part of the program. And as we weaved in and out of each other's lives with the second guru, as you went to Boston and, and I stayed in Chapel Hill... There was a break when I went to college, I think, where he kind of resented me as, like, a kid whose mom had the money to put him into college and, you know, a kid who was going to actually try to rise up out of the gutter on some minuscule level. Like, the fact that I even agreed to go to college somehow seemed to cross a battle line for him. Like, he seemed surprised that... I would somehow involve myself in such a bourgeois reality. Anybody would probably assume there was some jealousy going on just because my mom loved me and my mom wanted me to be happy and my mom wanted me to have a good life and he didn't have that. He probably could have said any reason why I shouldn't go to college, but I just felt forced to. I didn't have a lot of guilt about it. I was just like, my mom's making me do this shit. The less you're around the orbit of the guru, you're forced to find your own footing. And if you do eventually find your own footing and you do figure out how to live in the world on your own, just like a breakup, it's going to take a while. But once you get your feet on the ground, you're going to start looking back at that old reality and it's just going to become the past. What was once like everything to you and then was transmuted into a world of pain when you didn't have that person. Eventually, just time washes things away. 
you learn how to live by yourself and you look back at that time as a dated, encapsulized world that isn't you anymore. And that's really strange because you're like, this is something that formally defined you. And so that person or your relationship to them was everything. And you remember not being able to imagine the world without them. And now here you are, almost like someone's got out of prison and you're like trying to build a new life for yourself. And that was you then, but this is you now. As he became a character that I would tell people about and less one that I actually saw, I inducted Duncan into this idea about him. So as Duncan was sort of falling in love with like the atmosphere that I was living in, as depressing as it was, I was like, well, this comes from my guru. This world, this wild world of like potentiality in art, it leads back to this sort of gospel that I would preach that came from my guru. So, so Duncan was falling in love with my guru through my handing down of, of these tales. For some reason, I was able to kind of scare people with stories about him to a level where they felt like they knew him the nature of of his rejection of everything was so intense that it becomes like a folk hero tale like john henry or paul bunyan it becomes like someone larger than life because no one can imagine someone like this really exists as my life became more bourgeois inevitably i'm like You know, I'm at a nice private college. Teachers are paid. They have to read my paper. They have no choice. But back in Boston, like, I'm getting these uh, transmissions from his world pretty regularly. And as my life starts to kind of even out, like, the ship is kind of, like, riding itself, his life is getting darker. What was once a 21-year-old kid who was living in unlocked cars because he had nowhere to sleep and was writing incredible songs about it, <clears throat> taking heroin and going on the radio station and just improving these songs with his friends and people like Lou Barlow hearing this stuff and being like, holy shit, who is this genius? What was once like a really intense, youthful reality where he was channeling all this potential and nobody knew where it was going to end up was now, you know, flashed forward a few years and this person's starting to probably appear more like a homeless person to people. Right. The stories were getting weirder. Boston was in an ice storm. He was going home in the middle of the night and he saw a couple guys, like, kind of, like, eyeing him and he knew that they were going to try to rob him and he started running and it was like an ice storm and he jumped over a huge mound of snow and landed on the ice and slipped and fell and they like they broke his entire face in on one side so that his his like cheek collapsed and you know what am i going to say to that i'm like i got free lunches and you right, know right like beautiful girls around me and i don't think he ever even talked to a girl again you know after his his girlfriend, like, he straight up told me, like, I'm never going to love anybody else. Like, and he just, he's like 20 fucking five. 
procedural. Circuits in rectum finia. Quarterly shoulder hindrance rhea. Symphine me, symphine me. To lick to preen and shoot inside. Dampits of shriven hickling alder. One night, me and Duncan took some acid, and we were just giggling, and we are like, should we call him? Should we call him on the phone? You can ask Duncan this to this day, and he will insist without a shade of doubt that my guru put some sort of vampire on the phone. To me, I kind of knew the kinds of characters that he hung out with up in Boston, like People that were more disenfranchised than you can generally imagine. You know, people who are security guards and they're just from the other side of life. They're graveyard shift people and no one loves them and they don't have a fucking family anymore and they're just fucking drifting out in the world. When I worked in the homeless shelter, not only did I work with these people every fucking day, but all the people that worked with me were those people. They're from a different side of the tracks. We had an obese guy there that that I worked with. I worked with him all the time. And my boss was like, dude, he is leaving the weirdest messages on my answering machine. Listen to this. And we would laugh because he was pretty crazy. He talked like a child. He acted like a child. I think he still just like read comic books. One day, my boss comes up to me and he's like, Joe kind of killed his sister in his bathtub and like she's been in there for like over a week and he just got arrested you know he had like some sort of mental break he thought something was happening where he needed to like protect her from some fucking demons or whatever schizophrenic people think and he fucking killed his sister and left her in the bathtub for like two weeks this stuff was kind of normal too like my girlfriend worked with the vets and She had one case where one of her guys was like, he had a dream that a little Chinese man had come to him and couldn't breathe, so he had to help him breathe. And he had ended up stabbing his niece in the stomach like 60 times. Because in his mind, he was trying to help this fucking guy out. So this is shit you're hearing every day. Right. The people that my guru up in Boston was was fraternizing with, they weren't from the earth that we generally know. They were from this other outer limits world. So I knew the kind of characters that he that he mixed with. And one night me and Duncan call him up and he's like, you know, we're fucking giggling like little girls in our dorm room, tripping. Like, you know, we were coming off really like privileged and something happened where I said something sarcastic I mean we're all three of us were always like trying to tease each other but something I said like was kind of mean and Duncan didn't pick up on it either he was laughing and my guru was like wait a minute are you guys making fun of me and we were both like (gasps) 
um, no, 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 no. And he was like, I'm going to put my friend on the phone. And whoever got on the phone, the texture of their voice and the atmosphere, the pacing of how they spoke, I mean, you couldn't picture them. They did sound kind of like what you imagine the devil sounds like. Um, This all-knowing, kind of sneering, really deep but reedy kind of voice. And I think me and Duncan just, we were scared shitless. And this person kind of fucked with us. It definitely wasn't him. I think Duncan thinks it was him and he sort of like turned into some sort of chameleon. But these were the transmissions I was getting back from Boston. Like something was going wrong. Something was getting worse. And I mean, heroin is one thing. But Satanism is another. Whatever world he was drifting into was either much more self-destructive or it was leaving the earth behind. It was going to this, this place that maybe just had no values or I don't know what it was. But he had given up on himself maybe on a whole new level. I don't know. And at some point, me and Duncan decide that for spring break, we just... We got to go visit him. point forward, packages started arriving, usually full of about 10 to 20 letters, scribblings, some very manic thoughts, Xeroxes of bears and nature, all black and white, dead ends of the road, cold, broken fences, Polaroids of him jumping off a cliff pictures of a mouse he was keeping balancing on a gear shift looking at the camera and tapes the tapes were a continual transmission beaming off of some sort of moon that was patrolled by one lonely outsider by themselves often just filled with like very strange silence only he could make silence sound like that and then out of nowhere maybe the sounds of people muttering over a board game clacking and maybe you realize this is the living room of a halfway house and 
the recorder has just been perched in a corner and just left for who knows how long, hours. hours. So the tapes and letters were kind of clues to some sort of mystery life that he had disappeared into. Maybe he drove a cab. Maybe he was fired. Maybe he was living under a bridge, freezing. They were all guesses. Backpack, you know, it's just a, a, like 
in the middle of like all these suits and ties everywhere. It wasn't, I mean, there'd be a bike courier here and there and stuff, but like, it was just funny, you know? But people weren't paying much attention to me. It was just funny. I'm like, fucking really out of place. And I remember having this laughter inside me that I couldn't control, but I wasn't laughing. It was just like a, a, a perpetual flutter in my stomach of suppressed laughter. Because I didn't want to be laughing out loud in public all alone in front of all these people. But anyway, uh, all of a sudden I saw her. It was this black homeless lady. And I, when I say homeless lady, I mean like one of these really crazy ones that looks like some kind of shaman or something. I mean, all furs and skins and trinkets and like plastic bags wrapped around her feet and sheets all wrapped up in all rags. You know, one of those really crazy looking ones. And uh, I remember she, we noticed each other, whereas all these suits and ties were phased out. They were like in another plane of existence than us. They had us, they had us blocked out. It was like they were all walking like robots, and they weren't even aware of us. But she, and she didn't even seem aware of them. She was like hobbling through the street, mumbling, and like kind of seemed kind of irritable, you know, like mumbling. And, she saw me and she stopped in her tracks and like glared at me and I saw her and it was like the most amazing thing in the world because all these suits and ties all surrounding us all blocking us out as if they weren't even aware of us like they lived in a different universe and here we are almost like ghosts or spirits both aware of each other you have 12 old messages. You are powerless, but you are the knuckle. I disagreed with you. I disagreed with you. I I remember it was a really beautiful summer day And he called me up I think he always said it was an emergency If he needed pot Not that I really had any money But I guess I had the impetus and a car It wasn't unusual for people to loan me like effects units Bizarre things that would just sit there And I'd use them one time And I remember he sat down on the couch and I ran his voice through some echo and his exuberance just got set off. He just kind of came alive. He seemed totally unselfconscious. It was something I'd almost never see again. And a lot of his stuff was like 
straight freestyle off the top of his head over these like three chords but every once in a while you could tell he had been practicing something that he was working on you could never figure out when or why he was doing it or who for but all of a sudden he just wanted to make a song and I think my eyes were just wide as though Bob Dylan just walked into the basement and just happened to be in a good enough mood to make the basement tapes, which, you know, influenced an entire generation of songwriters and players. But it was just me. I'm like a 16-year-old kid playing a tambourine, watching this guy invent a genre and I was very very aware that I could not do this and probably never would invent virtually anything I wanted to be like my heroes I probably didn't even know my heroes already were listening to this guy and that song sat warbling and still sits on a tape marked 1992 in one of my fucking cases sitting under my feet right now. And no one would ever hear it. Fast forward about 10 years I'm sitting in a fucking bagel shop in Portland, Oregon with my new roommate. I'm trying to explain how important he is to me. You know, I got to go through this whole story again. Nobody could identify what it was I was even talking about. I'm sitting with my like little schlubby non-fitting clothes and shitty great clips haircut trying to explain this music and my roommate was just saying is anybody gonna ever hear it and I just started crying made her really uncomfortable swallowed the idea several times that maybe nobody's going to hear this I didn't care if it was me I just 
thought it was important. But gradually I was accepting that, you know, this wasn't going to be like a movement or nobody was going to care about this shit. And we'd missed our time, you know. We'd missed the time where people had decided and the press had decided this was like somehow relevant. As if the basement tapes aren't still relevant. I was still a kid, so I thought that everybody would understand. And I thought that things would work out. And now I talk to kids like that all the time. And I can see them online trying to figure out who this guru is. And they don't understand. You're never going to know. And it doesn't even matter.
This person never joined the rat race from the beginning. They never wanted anyone to like them. They were embarrassed of their own expression and vulnerability. They weren't sure if they liked it. So they didn't want to be found from day one, which flies directly against everything in our world and every impulse that we understand because we are dying for attention and we're dying for credit and love and this is someone who went the other way we'll never understand somebody who wanted to leave the castle and live out in the cold and kill themselves or risk it every single day out of some unknowable masochistic or religious drive that's beyond the entire will to survive that we understand as the animal impulse. This is a new evolution. Someone who has left the world entirely. Kafka's life and how he worked late into the night processing everything he was thinking for himself it was a therapy mission and he worked hard and at the end of his life when he'd created these private masterpieces like the castle things that children like me look up to as these pillars of absurdist thought he told his friend I'm gonna die my only request to you is to burn everything I wrote his friend agreed he died and then his friend changed his mind My friend's not dead yet, so I can't do that.
Thank you. 